What did Jesus leave behind when he died? Because Jesus died and ascended, well, he rose from the dead, and then he ascended to be with his father. And he left behind a legacy. And that legacy was, of course, his teaching and his example and people who'd been touched by his life. And that's remembered and recorded by his followers in Scripture. He left behind, um, actually, the gift of the Spirit to his followers. And that, we, we, as we go towards Pentecost, we'll be thinking about that. But he left behind a community of people who loved him, the church. And he gave that church a commission to live out. And we're part of that great tradition. And I want to just begin, before we dive into tonight's topic, just to think about what it means to be living out the call of Jesus on our life. And one of my heroes, John Wimber, talked about if you're converted, if you, if you become a follower of Jesus, there are three commitments that you make. A commitment to Christ, to his cause, and to his church. And here we, we at Woodland sometimes talk about the up, in and out of being a Christian. That as, a, as a Christian, part of what you do is you, you have a relationship with God, you have a relationship with the people of God, the family, that's the in, and you have a relationship with everybody else out in the world. You, we're called to mission. And actually, whenever a group of people are doing up, in and out stuff, they're being in church because it's the church that is an up, in, out community. A church is a gathering, a community of people that love God, love one another, and love the world. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to think about those topics. Next Sunday night, we're going to think about what it, what it means for us to really be community. We want to be really practical because it's one thing to come along to church and suddenly be part of a crowd. It's another thing to connect with people deeply and with reality and integrity and intimacy and become a community. And then we're going to be thinking about what it particularly means for us to serve our city because we have a real sense of a call from God to serve the city of Bristol. So that's the way we're going over the next three weeks. But I want to just begin about, um, as we think, and think about the, the greatest commandment in, in the Bible. What is the greatest commandment? Maybe could, someone could put their hand up and tell me what it is, or shout out, what's the greatest commandment in the Bible? Love yeah, right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. I remember a long time ago buying one of my sons um, some underwear which said, love God on it. And I thought it was like a commandment, but in fact, it turned out to be something quite different. Anyway, but um, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, that is a big deal. That's the greatest commandment. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, we can read that. But when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He reiterated that one and uh, in, in Luke 10. He says, this is the greatest commandment, to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And, and, um, and, and actually, Jesus links with that commandment, as does the teacher of the law who's asking the question. A second commandment is like it, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And there's something about loving God, which means that we can't really love God but not love people. Because God is love, and, and God's love is generous and outward-looking, so we love our neighbor. When Jesus was asked about what a neighbor looks like, he, he, he told a story called the Good Samaritan. We call it that. And it, it lifts the, the, the nature of, of our neighbor, not just to the person who's like us, part of our worship and community, not just a fellow Jew, but someone who's the other, someone who's in need, someone who's different from us. And so you can see that the great commandment of loving the Lord your God 
actually everything else ties into it, doesn't it? And that triangle is made complete. They, they, all the different aspects of it belong together. If we say we love God but we don't love our brother, we're in trouble, the Bible tells us. If we really love God, we will really love the people who are most on the edge because God is a missionary God who goes after the lost and the last and the least. And so as we think about these things, there's an integrity about it. And if we, if we say, well, I just love God, but I'm very private about my relationship with God, we've got to ask the question, am I really a Christian? Am I just maybe a deist, someone who believes in God? But if I'm really a Christian, the loving God has implications which we're going to unpack. So there's the great command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, if I told you tonight, I'm commanding you to love Arsenal Football Club. You might, you might come back at me and say, how can I possibly do that? First of all, I don't like football. Or second of all, I do like football, I really don't like Arsenal. And it's a really sad thing that they drew today. But anyway, we won't go there. But you know, a command to love seems a bit countercultural, does it? Does it sound, you know, how can I command you to love someone or love something? Does that seem odd to you? You know, in our culture, we... we we treat love, we, we, we encounter love. It's something that happens to us. We, we talk about falling in love. Anyone ever fallen in love in the room tonight? And, and did you? I see. Did someone command you to fall in love? Luke Addison. You're getting married to Izzy Grafton there. Did someone command you, love Izzy? All right. It just happened. How, so, and, and, and for, for many of us, you know, love is something that it comes upon us. And the challenge about that, that point of view, actually, is that sometimes we do relationships as long as we're feeling it, we're in that relationship. But when we stop feeling it, we're out of it. And if that's the way that love is, if love is just something that happens to us, and, you know, it's kind of like, oh, it's swept over me like a fever. But I've, I might recover from it one day, and then I'll be back to normal. But if, if love is, is, is like that, it's just a, an emotional response, then why would we ever make promises at a marriage service? I'm taking a marriage here next, well, I'm picking a marriage here next Saturday, and Emma, who was sat there, has gone downstairs, and Fred are getting married, and th they'll be asked to make promises to one another. Will you love him, comfort him, honor and protect him, and forsaking all others, be faithful to him as long as you both shall, shall live? And they'll make promises like, with my body I honor you, all that I am I give to you, all that I have I share with you. And it's for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. It's kind of big promises. It would be meaningless to make those promises if love was just an emotion that swept over us. Because we're not in control of that. The fact that we make promises to love one another implies that love is more than just a feeling. It's a posture. It's a way of life that is more permanent and more powerful and more secure and more deep than the waves of emotion that we feel. Now, in reality, love in our relationships can start with a moment. It can start with a eyes meeting. It can start with a, or it can start with a, uh, a, a gradually warming of the heart and the emotions until we, oh, I'm, 
got butterflies when I see that person. I, I'm, I'm, I've, I've fallen in love. And it can start with a vision of what life can look like if my life is bound up with that person's life. Love can start like that. We talk about a honeymoon phase. Izzy and uh, Luke have been going out for so long, they've already been through that phase and out the other side. But <laughs> no, it starts with, that, with a honeymoon phase where, oh, don't we communicate well? We have so much in common. You know, whenever we're together, life seems richer. But, you know, for, for most people, the honeymoon phase is just a phase. And love changes into something where there are elements of duty. Right now, we've heard Amy Viner say, we are in love with little Reuben Andrew, Ruru, as we call him. Um, <laughs> and it might well be, actually, that, you know, well, of, of course he's adorable, and, and they're, you know, and it happens to us when we have a, it's extraordinary what happens, the impact, where, you know, you don't like babies, you have one of your own, wow. But honestly, as a parent, and I'm saying this on good authority, having had five children, you are not always loving your kids in your heart, because from time to time, they are winding you up. <laughs> and you're, you're kind of dialing the social worker, say, is this somewhere I can have this child adopted? You know? But, but when they are at their worst, when they're winding you up, if you're a proper parent, you still keep the posture of love towards them because you know that actually feelings come and go, but your love is a choice. It's an intentionality. It's a commitment of the heart. And... Uh, and, and, and there it is. The challenge for us in our human love relationships is that what begins with a moment or a vision or a, an encounter or a whatever can turn into something that is just duty and nothing more than that. And particularly that can be true in, in, our, in our marriage relationships where... And Forgive me if I feel this is a very marriage-centric, just an analogy. You know, for those of you who are single have never been married, there will be other things this will be true for, actually, for you. But um, it's very common, actually, in a marriage, for something that starts with, with you know, and with romance and roses, to become very duty-driven. And it's, it's, you know, well, we're still sharing the mortgage, we're still making sure we've got food in the house, but the, the romance has gone out of it. And actually... In, when marriage just becomes duty, it becomes vulnerable to hardness of heart because two lives joined together are difficult to sustain because we are self-orientated, self-willed people. And it, it, we, we kind of need more than just the duty. We need the, the heart stuff too, you know? Now, honestly, I believe that faith can be like that. We can start with a an experience of God. It may be you've been in worship tonight and your heart has been strangely warmed and you feel like this Jesus they're singing about, I feel drawn by him. I want to get to know him better. It might be that you've had a conversion experience. You've had a powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit. Your life has been turned around. It's been a pivot. And it, it might be that you have fallen in love with God. And I can look back at my Christian life and know seasons of being in love with God, where it feels like, analogous to a romance almost, that you, you're kind of like, life is better. You, you, the presence of God is real. Your heart is warmed. You're tender. You've been tenderized by God. 
But it's possible, too, for those feelings to ebb away and you to be doing church out of religious duty. Because you know it's right to read your Bible. You know it's right to pray. You know it's right to show up at church. And, and things that you did because you had a heart for it can be reduced to a religious practice. Jesus has some strong things to say to a church like that. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 2, Jesus is speaking to the church in Ephesus. And Jesus says to that church, you know, I've seen your hard work. I've seen the way you've tested false teachers. I know your deeds and all that sort of stuff. But I have this against you. You have lost your first love. Repent and do the things you did at first. Because actually Jesus is after our hearts. He, you know, vision can become duty. Falling in love can become duty. Parenting can become duty. A whole lot of things can become duty. And it's not that the duty is wrong. But without the heart, it's, in, it's deficient. It's inadequate. And, and, and our job as Christians is for sure, if we've got a, a heart issue, let's not neglect doing the things that we need to do. But we wonder, because there's a command, because there's a choice to love God, I want to ask you, is it possible that we can cultivate love in such a way that it's not just a posture of life, though it is that, but it's also a heart affair where actually our desire for God grows and increases. And I just want to take you to a passage of, of Scripture. It's um, Colossians chapter 3. And I've talked about a command to love. Now I'm going to tell, talk to you about a cultivating of love because I've got three C's in my talk because I'm a preacher and they, they, I've just done the alliteration of things, three points that alliterate. Colossians 3 says this, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bear with each other, forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, 
since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. It's a big, chunky passage. But what it's talking about is how do you cultivate a love for God? And there are two strands to the way we cultivate things. If you're a gardener and you want to cultivate something, there are two things you need to do. You need to get rid of the weeds and you need to water and fertilize what's what you want, the good stuff there. And it's the same with our heart for God. And this is what this passage talks about. It's putting some things off and putting some things on. You're putting off things that to do with this kind of stuff that you find within yourself that is actually anti-God. And probably, if you're like me, you will find within yourself some stuff that actually is in rebellion to God because it wants to promote you. You know, we, we're called to live from a deep place. We're called to live out of a place where Jesus is Lord. We, we went to, to live by our spirit. But we, we tend not to live inside-out lives like that. We tend to live outside-in lives where we're taking in stuff that's going to feed our ego and ourselves. And we can find that this stuff, this hard, this hard stuff, this anger, this malicious talk that he's talking about, this, this rage, this, this kind of stuff, because I want to be the center of my world. If, if I've, there are obstacles to me being the center of my world, I want to get rid of them. And, and, and I, I, I'm competitive and... Uh, and, and I'm appetite-driven, and I'm about serving me and my needs rather than serving God and his needs or the, the needs of the poor, you know, and, and all that sort of stuff. Actually, I've got to get rid of that kind of stuff if I'm going to have a relationship with God. And I also need to cultivate things that are going to help me have a relationship with God. And, and it, it talks about things that to do with our mind and our spirit. It talks about worship and teaching. It talks about getting a, a kingdom perspective. Jesus talks in Matthew chapter 6, about a, we talk there about a secret history with God. And in that chapter, part of the Sermon on the Mount, we read about Jesus who tells us to, to embrace some disciplines of intimacy, a secret history where we do things just for the sake of the Father, not to look good on the outside, not because they're religious practices, but because we want to do stuff with our Father, like pray, like give the poor because he loves to care for the poor, like fast to make space in our lives for intimacy and relationship, like forgive people. And I think that we have to have in our life together and our life on our own, for sure, practices that cultivate love. And I'm going to go back to the marriage analogy again. I mean, I've been married for 43 years. And my greatest ambition when I was a student at Bristol University was to marry Tina. That's why I didn't do spectacularly well in my finals. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I, I, that was my ambition. We've been married for 43 years. And um, honestly, to keep our marriage alive over 43 years, we have to keep cultivating love. So what you'll find, if you know, know me, is that I'm quite rigorous about making sure I have a day a week that is Tina-centred. I mean, it's great to have to do life together, but we live in community, we, we, we have busy lives and stuff. But I've got to make sure I can't get by without at least a day a week that's together. And I can't get by with any day without a bit of time where we can have exclusive time with one another. Unfortunately, we both get up early and we, we have time together at the start of our day. Because... 
if we're not cultivating that, it's amazing how little bits of hardness and distance can creep in. We have to, we have to work at cultivating our relationship. And um, I need to welcome things into my life that are going to feed my relationship with Tina. And actually, relationships work like that. You know, it could be as, as, a, as a married person, how do you kind of cultivate your relationship? Well, you put off things that are going to hinder it. Maybe you don't take your secretary out for lunch, but you go home early and buy some flowers for your wife. You know, it's simple things like that. How do you cultivate, how do we get rid of the rubbish, the distractions, and how do we welcome the good stuff? And if it's like that in a human relationship, honestly, it is like that in a relationship with God. How do we welcome the things? So I have to put off from my life things that actually can distract me from God. Sometimes I can have a divided heart, and God's call on me is to have an undivided heart. And so where is my heart? And, and my heart, I know where my heart is because that's where I go when I'm on my own, where my thoughts go, where my money goes, where my fantasies go, or all that kind of stuff. That's where my heart is. And I can look, I can do all the religious practices really well, but God is not interested in those things. The prophet Isaiah says, you know, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God wants my heart. So I've got to take steps to cultivate it. And the good news is that I can grow in my relationship with God. It's not just that I maintain. I can actually grow it, and it can mature into something better than the heady days when I began. Actually, I have a more mature relationship with God now than I had when I began. I have a more mature relationship with Tina than I had when I began. So there's a command to love. The cultivation is going deeper than the practices, good and helpful though they are. The practices themselves are there to help the inner life. They're, we must not replace them with a sense of, I'm doing this because of duty. So for me, I read the Bible not because I feel I should read the Bible, but because I find that I... I'm enriched on the inside when I do that. And the way that I do that, I've had to learn to do that in a way that's enriching. And part of that is say, I'm not going to do it because I have to do it as a duty. I'm going to do it because it's a pathway to intimacy. But you might be saying, you know, great, so, so what then is the reward that Jesus speaks about when he says, do these things in secret, and the Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And the reward of cultivating a love for God is an increased capacity for God. That's your third C. The command to love, the cultivation of love, and the capacity for God, which actually is a capacity for love. There's only one thing that you're going to take into eternity with you when you die. Talk about death downstairs, we're going to talk about death upstairs. You're all going to die. And we are going to leave everything behind except our relationship with God. That's it. That's what we take into eternity with us. And in this life, we can grow 
our capacity for God. That's the, and the reward, the reward of loving God is God. You get God. I've, I, you've probably heard me talk about this before, but I'm just going to talk about it again because it's helpful to me and I hope it will be helpful to, to you. In my life, from time to time, I've done things that have increased my capacity. A few years ago, Philip Gennardo launched something called Love Running. It was a mass entry from this church and other churches, the Bristol 10K Run, to raise money from charity, for charity, and to, not from charity, for charity, to raise money and to um, also to make bridges of connection with our, our friends who, who were sporty and maybe a running club. There's lots of benefits to it. I have not run since I left school because running is deeply boring, isn't it? And unpleasant. <laughs> but <laughs> I, you know, I'm a church leader. Philip's very persuasive. <laughs> I signed up for the Bristol 10K. And uh, I don't know if you've started running when you've not run for a long time, but you can't go very far. <laughs> um, but what I discovered was as I trained, my capacity for running increased. And where, you know, to the, in the end, I could run up Redland Road onto the Downs without stopping, without puffing too much, actually hold a conversation with someone else as I ran. And I could run 10K, and, um, and, and that was without stopping, you know, which it was just my capacity for running increased. And I was grateful that I had that capacity. But the re reward for doing it, well, there was a financial reward for the charities, but my reward was that I could run better. That was it. Similarly, you know, I, I don't know, classical music, who enjoys a classical music concert here? All right. You know, to be honest, I've, I do like a bit of classical music, but I remember going to a classical concert with my father-in-law, and he was sat next to me in tears, and I was getting a bit restive. <laughs> you know, where's the drums? Where's the electric guitar? It's not there. You know, I was getting a little bit, because my capacity to, to really embrace that musical form was limited by my ignorance. But actually, in studying and, and getting to understand what a composer is doing, my capacity for it increasing the reward of studying music is I can enjoy music more. And that enriches my life. So this is the reward for loving God. You get more of God in your life. And God is love. And his love means that everything you do and everything you touch, there's love in it. If you love God, you will love people more. If you really love God, you will do that. If you love God, your heart will be soft. And therefore, there's more room in it because a soft heart can expand. A hard heart is brittle and small, and it can get broken very easily. And it hasn't got a lot of room, but a soft heart can expand when it needs to. And when you, when you love God, you, you start to love the people that he loves, the things that he's about. You love to do the things that he does. You, you, love, you love his word. You love his ways. You, you start to see his hand in creation. When I go for a walk with, with Tina, and, 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 and she, she instructs me in, in the, the, the incredible, impossible beauty that God has put in the world. And we'll go for a walk, and we're under a cherry tree, and she says, stop, let's look up. And you look through the cherry blossom and the, the blue sky every now and then beyond it, and it's like a vision of heaven, and, and it's kind of, that's beauty, and God did that. Oh, awesome. 
And I find at the moment I'm just struck by beauty everywhere. You go out in the morning and just the, the colors in the sky as the sun rises. And they're extraordinary. And, and, and you, you, you meet a person and, and you just, what a, how privileged I am to, to be, whatever. You know, because God is working all over the place and his beauty is everywhere. And if, he's, if you're loving him, your life will be richer and you'll be more content because you won't want the stuff that drives your appetites because they are just the stuff that you're offered as a substitute for God. That's why we call it idolatry. The st- that stuff. Why are you mucking about with that stuff when you could have God? Why are you loving that stuff when you could have God? And that even counts for Arsenal Football Club. Football's always a false idol. It always breaks your heart, doesn't it? Loving God. That's the, that's the fruit of it. And I, I love um, the, the way... Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3. I'm just going to close with a, a bit more scripture. And, and Paul is someone who, his goal is loving God. And uh, you know, he was a very religious guy. And he had a lot of religious equity and status as a, as a you know, Jew and a Pharisee. And a, but he says, I count it as rubbish. This is what he says. Whatever we gain... Whatever will gain to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. He's got it, hasn't he? He's got what it means to be going into eternity as a lover of Jesus, as a lover of God, with the capacity for him. And, and nothing else counts. That, that's what it means when God has your heart. And it's the safest place to be because, to be honest, everything else that can be shaken will be shaken. Um, I believe there's a real battle for our hearts. And I think that's for us as individuals, but I also think it's for us as a community. When you came in tonight, and maybe you're a visitor here, and you're worshipping with us, and you saw the passionate worship team, and Joe and Julia and, and the team, worshiping passionately because it's not about music it's about a heart for God thank you for sharing your heart for God with us that's what it's about that's why we worship because we want God to have our heart and when we offer our heart to him he comes and fills it with his incredible love we're going to go back into worship as a bit of a response to tonight but honestly there's a battle for the soul 
of our nation right now, maybe for the whole of the Western world. We are becoming soulless, soul-destroyed, shallow, selfish, driven by an individualism that makes me on the throne, where we, we, we've lost community, we've lost connection with the head, we've, we've lost so much. And bad things happen when we've got hard hearts, when our soul's been destroyed. And, and we're out to we're going to be a soft-hearted, loving people that are going to go, because we love the God, we're going to go and love this city, go and love the world, go and love our neighbors, where the, the presence of love is tangible here. We would trade anything and everything else for that. We're here because we are lovers. We love God. He loves us. So I'm going to pray. Um, we'll go back into worship. If you, as we worship, you feel, oh, I just want to recommit myself to God. I want my heart to be softened. Then we'll find ways of praying with you, ministering to you. We'd love to do that. But just join me in prayer now. Maybe if, if you're saying, God, my heart's a mess. Sort it out. My heart's divided. Sort it out. My heart's backed away from full love for you. Sort it out. Maybe I've become a bit religious. Sort it out. Holy Spirit, will you come? Put your hand on your heart if you need him there, as I do. Lord, you have my heart. It belongs to you. You're the, you, it's meant to be your throne. It's the, the place where you dwell. Lord, have my heart. Lord, I give myself to you again. Soften my heart, Lord God, with the oil of your spirit and by showing me again the blood of Jesus who bled for me. Soften my heart, Lord God, where I've allowed idols to, to have their reign and rule in me. Get rid of them, Lord God. Get rid of my, my lusts, my desires, my, my passions, my selfishness. Lord, give me yourself. In Jesus' name. Amen.